Scripture text for this morning's message is from Romans chapter 11, verses 23 through 29. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? Lest you be wise in your own conceits, I want you to understand this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening is come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the Deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob, and this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies of God for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Let's pray together. We say it from the bottom of our hearts. You never failed us. You never failed us. We have failed you. And it makes us tremble to think about grace and mercy. Day and night. Never leaving us. Never forsaking us. So we say thank you. And we resolve with the power of your Holy Spirit to put all conceit out of our lives, all boasting over the broken off branches of Israel, all pride and presumption, ethnocentricity, racism that would cause us to puff ourselves up over another. To that end, we want to Understand what Paul meant when he said, that you may not be conceited. I want you to understand this mystery. That a hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. And then this way all Israel will be saved. So this you must understand in order not to be an arrogant people. So that's what we're after, Lord. We're after the gift of humility through understanding your word. Please help us in this now in Jesus' name. Amen. So God has us in Romans 11 now at a very remarkable point in American culture, American history. The place of Israel in the Middle East is perhaps the most explosive and significant issue in the world as far as world stability and world peace goes. The place of Israel in Minneapolis and St. Paul, vis-a-vis the Church of Jesus Christ, is a front-burner issue for some people this very morning. And so it seemed wise to me to put today's message into that context of the urgency of the issue of Israel Today and next Sunday, I received a email on Friday from 
a rabbi addressed to about a dozen downtown clergy, churches that you'd all know about in a mile from here or so. And I want to read you from it in order for you to sense what the Gibson movie, The Passion of the Christ, signifies to Jewish people and the implications it may have for Jewish-Christian relations. So here is an excerpt from that email. It is with this sense of respect and need for dialogue that we raise our concerns about this film with you. We are gravely aware of the potential rifts this film could open once again, not only between Jews and Christians, but between Christians of different viewpoints. Our world has become all too polarized in recent years, and we believe this film promotes that very polarization. After viewing the film, we are deeply troubled with the way in which Jews are portrayed. No religious, racial, or ethnic group welcomes being stereotyped. This film portrays Jews who did not follow Jesus as a bloodthirsty crowd demanding the crucifixion of Jesus, unyielding in their lust for his torment and death. For almost 2,000 years, the week leading up to Easter was a time when some of the worst violence against Jews occurred, often because passion plays encouraged an interpretation that blamed Jews collectively for the death of Jesus and also served as a reminder that Jews do not accept Jesus. In recent decades, the Catholic Church and many Christian denominations recognized that the charge of deicide, the murder of God, and the depiction of Jews in passion plays have led to the death, expulsion, and horrific mistreatment of Jews. The repudiation of the deicide charge by the Catholic Church and others and calls by leadership groups with Christianity for, within Christianity for responsible, accurate, sensitive portrayals of the passion, mark those words, a call for responsible, accurate, sensitive portrayals of the passion have played an instrumental role in not only diminishing tensions between Christians and Jews, but building relationships based on trust and mutual respect. We hope that as you and your congregants view this film and talk about it, you and they will gain awareness of the Jewish perspective and welcome the Jewish perspective and come to understand the source of our concerns and the sincerity of our prayers for peace and understanding. We ask Christian clergy to discuss these perspectives with their congregants as they wrestle with the meaning and their understanding of this controversial film. Our hope is that all religious institutions find in their mission to build bridges of understanding and peace. Now, I make no effort this morning to defend the movie. You must decide in seeing it whether it is a responsible, accurate, sensitive portrayal of Jesus' final suffering. My concern now and here is to simply make plain 
that the bridge of peace and understanding built between the Christian community in Minneapolis and the Jewish community in Minneapolis by Romans 11 is a bridge over which Jesus Christ walks saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father but by me. It's a bridge over which we walk behind him, praying, brokenhearted, humble, longing, yearning with the words, there is one name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved, the name Jesus Christ. And there is no love to be shown any other way in order that Jew and Gentile might be saved from the wrath to come. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 verse 10, you don't need to go there, says, Christians wait for God's Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Now, the reason I refer to that verse is because the phrase, who delivers, is the same word and the same construction of the word found in Romans 11.26, where it says, And in this way, all Israel will be saved, as is written, the Deliverer. Now, that's the same word and the same construction of the word. The one who delivers will come from Zion, either Jerusalem or the heavenly Jerusalem, and he will banish ungodliness from Jacob. So we see that the deliverer who will save Israel is Jesus, who comes in order to deliver us from the wrath to come. This is not a political, military deliverance. This is a deliverance that happens through the banishing of ungodliness. And the next phrase is, and he will make a covenant with them and it will be the forgiveness of their sins. The banishing of ungodliness and the forgiveness of sins is the deliverance of all Israel from the wrath to come. And that's the bridge we build. And if... In walking across the bridge with this gospel, calling Jew and Gentile to believe in Jesus. They ask what they must do. We say from verse 23 of chapter 11, if they do not continue in their unbelief, they will be grafted in again. So. I say clearly and forthrightly, with no hedging, there is a bridge of peace 
with God and each other. And there's a bridge of understanding that must be built. And the bridge of Romans 11 is first an explanation and then an invitation that there is one tree with one root in the Abrahamic covenant and one Messiah deliverer by which through faith in him we are united to this tree or broken off from this tree. Faith alone in him now constitutes this tree of salvation. That's the bridge of understanding. That's the bridge of explanation. That's the bridge of invitation which Christians on their knees, ready to die, speak to the Jewish community and to the fullness of the nations that are on their way in. Now, I state it clearly because I am fully aware that it is not believed and not appreciated in the Jewish community. Nevertheless, we go with the Apostle Paul in prayer. Chapter 10, verse 1. My heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. We go with Paul in Romans 11:14. I magnify my ministry to the Gentiles in order if by any means I might make my kinsmen, my Jewish kinsmen jealous, if by any means I might save some of them. However, there is another view, and it is a tragic view. It's a sad view. Namely, that there's a Jewish way to God, and there's a Christian way to God. There are two covenants and two tracks bound for glory. Let me read for you the words that John Stott in his Commentary on Romans 11.26 writes concerning this very common teaching which is much abroad in the Jewish Christian dialogue in the Twin Cities. It is understandable that since the Holocaust, Jews have demanded an end to the Christian missionary activity among them. And that many Christians have felt embarrassed about continuing it. It is even suggested that Jewish evangelism is an unacceptable form of anti-Semitism. So some Christians have attempted to develop a theological basis for leaving Jews alone in their Judaism. Reminding us that God's covenant with Abraham was an everlasting covenant. They maintain that it is still in force and that therefore God saves Jewish people through their own covenant without any necessity for them to believe in Jesus. This proposal is usually called a two-covenant theology. Bishop Christer Stendhal was the first one of the scholars to argue for it, namely that there are two different salvation tracks. The Christian track for the believing remnant of Jews and the believing Gentiles, and a track for historical Israel, which relies on God's covenant with them. Romans 11, Stott says, stands in clear opposition 
to this trend because of its insistence on the fact that there is only one olive tree to which Jews and Gentiles, believers, both belong. The irony of this, writes Tom Wright, is that the late 20th century, in order to avoid anti-Semitism, has advocated a position, the non-evangelization of the Jews, which Paul regards precisely as anti-Semitic. Amen and amen to John Stott's words. There is an anti-Semitism, and it is a bridge with two tracks. A tract that says to Jews, you may get to heaven and be reconciled with your holy God without trusting in Jesus as your Savior and Lord, Messiah and treasure. That's anti-Semitic with a vengeance. And we will not fall into that pattern of anti-Semitism that cries down judgment on a people being steered away from their only hope of reconciliation with God. We will not be a part of that anti-Semitism. So let the point be made clearly today. And the point of this text is not merely that Christ is the only way that all Israel can be saved The point of this text is mainly this salvation of all Israel will most certainly happen. That's the point of this text. Verse 29 underlines or undergirds or is the foundation underneath that certainty. God has given, mark the word given, covenant and promises to Israel. And God has called, mark the word called, Israel out of the earth, the Chaldees, to be a people of his own, to be a blessing to the nations. Verse 29 says, the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. That's the foundation in verse 29 under the preceding Verses of promise. So let's read verse 25 and 26. Lest you Gentiles be wise in your own conceits as you walk across this bridge with this message to Israel. I want you to understand this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening. There are Jews being saved. It's not a total hardening. A partial hardening has come upon Israel. We saw that back in verse 7. Until, mark it, there's going to be an end to it. The Gentiles, the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. You wonder why we're a missionary people? Because a fullness of the nations is coming in. Every tribe, tongue, people, and nation will be gathered into the fullness of the Gentiles. And not until that happens will the rest of history happen. 
until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. This will be the covenant that I make with them when I forgive their sins. So it does not say all Israel may be saved. It says all Israel will be saved. Now I have taught for several months that what that means is that there's coming a time in which the generation the ethnic reality, the national totality, not necessarily every single individual, because frequently in the Bible, the term all Israel, when it said all Israel gathered at Succoth, that doesn't mean there weren't a few people left back in town. It just means en masse they moved. So my understanding of this is that there's coming a day in which godliness ungodliness will be removed, hardening, the hardening until the fullness of the Gentiles, and then it will be removed, forgiveness of sins will be granted, grace will draw all Israel into the Christian church, which is a very Jewish church, if we know ourselves well, and be saved from the wrath to come. Now, I'm aware keenly aware that that's not the only evangelical interpretation of the term all Israel here. Let me give you two other interpretations, and there are some of you in this church who hold these views, and I want to speak without rancor and without separation about the differences. Here are the two main other views, and I regard them as totally legitimate Theologically, In other words, to hold them does not in any way make you close to a heretic because they don't contradict biblical theology elsewhere. Another view besides mine is that all Israel refers to Jew and Gentile who are saved because the Bible treats the church as the true Israel. And that's right. It is the true Israel. And therefore, it does not, this view doesn't think that there's a mass conversion coming for the nation. It just says that all the Jews and Gentiles that will be saved through history are all Israel. And that's how they get saved, by a hardening for a season and then all the Gentiles coming in. Here's the second view. It's almost the same, a little different. The second view says... No, all Israel is Jews, ethnic Jews, but it's just those who through history are being saved because Paul says back in verse 14, I magnify my ministry among the Gentiles if by any means I might save some. And in this way, saving some in each generation, all Israel, that is, all the remnant, not any future big turning of Israel as a nation. So the the two alternative views simply say that's what what Piper says is coming isn't coming. It's being built along the way. 
Now, that is not a big theological difference. It's a big eschatological difference in that our expectations of what's coming is different. But theologically, I have no problem with those two views. And so if you hold those views, I'm not going to get bent out of shape. But I hope you will let me now give you five reasons for my view. (laughs) All right. Five pointers. And they aren't the only ones, just ones that you can see with me as to why I'm persuaded that the phrase all Israel means that the very nation that's hardened as a whole will one day be saved as a whole. I think that's the pattern all through this chapter. So here's reason number one. When you look at verses 25 and 26, the the term Israel in verse 25, I think, should be the same as the meaning in verse 26. Verse 25 says, lest you be wise in your own conceits. I want you to understand this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel. Now, everybody agrees that's the nation as a whole. There are exceptions, of course. Jews for Jesus, when they hit a city with Behold Your God campaign, a few dozen Jewish people believe in every city, maybe a few hundred. But of the 14 million in the world, most of them don't yet. And so upon a hardening has come upon Israel is, is a totality with exceptions. So when you read verse 26, until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in and in this way, all Israel. Now, should it have a different meaning than it just had in verse 25? And I say, no, it should have the same meaning. You shouldn't give Israel a different meaning in verse 26 that it had in verse 25. And the meaning it has in verse 25 is this massive group of ethnic national Israel not believing. And there one day, that group, that Israel, is going to believe. Second argument. The banishing of ungodliness from Jacob in verse 26. That term Jacob, I think, most naturally refers to Israel as a whole. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. The most natural way to understand banish ungodliness from Jacob is that Jacob in the Old Testament is a common word to refer to the people as a whole, not not a tiny remnant. Third argument. In verse 28, the two halves, this one is a very strong argument to me, one of the strongest. Consider these two halves of this verse and... Ponder who the they is in both halves. As regards the gospel, they are enemies of God for your sake. So this is, they are enemies. Who's that? That's the mass, the totality of unbelieving Israel. Resisting their Messiah and here called enemies of God. For your sake, meaning the fullness of the Gentiles are coming in for a season. Now, I don't think the they in the first half of the verse should be different from the they in the second half of the verse. So let's read on. But as regards election, they, it's the same they, it's the same group. They are beloved. 
for the sake of their fathers. In other words, if the root was holy, the branches are going to be holy. Someday the they is going to experience the saving work of the one who chose them. This, this does not mean that every Jew who's ever lived is saved. It means that the totality that is once unbelieving, that totality at a future generation is going to be acted upon by the deliverer. He will banish ungodliness. He will forgive their sins and they will be grafted back into the tree. And we will be one people, Jew and Gentile, in the presence of King Jesus forever. That's the eschatology. That's the final thing that I see coming. Argument number four, verse 12. This parallel carries through. Now, if there, that is the Jewish nations, the nation, the ethnic whole, if their trespass means riches for the world, there's the Gentiles streaming into the tree. And if there, that is the Jewish nation's failure, means riches for the Gentiles, that's our salvation coming to us because the Messiah was sent to Gentiles, how much more will their, the same people, fullness mean? The full inclusion. I don't think we should change the meaning of their from their trespass and their failure to their fullness and say the there here is totality and the there here is a little tiny remnant. I don't see it. I think Paul is carrying through this parallel all the way. Verse 15. Final argument. For if their Jewish nation as a whole, rejection means reconciliation for the world, that's us being folded into Christ because of this. What will their acceptance, and it's the same there, mean but life from the dead? So those are my five reasons. And I could give you others to say that as I read this This three chapters, 9, 10, 11, it begins with, has the word of God fallen in view of the fact that so many Jewish people are unbelieving, lost, cut off from Christ? And he spends three three chapters answering that question. And his answer is, no, the word of God has not fallen. And his first answer is, not all Israel is Israel. Verse 6, chapter 9, a remnant. God never meant by the promises that every single individual Jew would be guaranteed salvation no matter what. Argument number two of Paul for why the word of God has not fallen is that some of Israel in every generation will be saved. There will always be a remnant physically, ethnically. That's the beginning of chapter 11 and Romans 9, 27. Now I'm arguing there's a third argument, and this is where we part ways. I'm arguing there's a third argument for the support of God's faithfulness to his word. And that is not only are many Gentiles and some Jews folded into the tree. So God keeps his word to his remnant. But one day that covenant is going to be fully realized in a massive turning to Christ among the Jewish people. And all Israel will be Saved through Christ. Same way we're saved. Not a different way. Not two tracks. One track. 
one tree, one grafting back in, they are able to be and I will graft them back in again if they do not remain in their unbelief. And the deliverer is going to come and banish unbelief from them. So they will be grafted back in. And therefore, the word of God to Abraham has not fallen. Now, closing thoughts. How is that going to happen? Wouldn't you like to know? So would I. I can't go beyond what I'm able to see. And I admit I see through a glass darkly and I'm not a a prophetic expert. Some people spend all their time figuring out details of prophecy. Uh, I don't. I've tried and I get so mixed up in the book of Revelation. I just say there are really clear, important things I need to give my life to. (laughs) And if you are among the number who can devote your life to understanding the intricacies of biblical prophecy, then uh, you may make an appointment with me and try to set me straight. But I see a few things massively important and I think clearly. So I'm not going to give you details, but I will say this much. If I had time, we might look at three other prophecies that would suggest that the deliverer coming from Zion is, in fact, the second coming and in some way connected with the second coming The veil will be lifted. The hardening will be removed. They will look upon their Savior and believe. Now, let me mention those three prophecies. Zechariah 12.10. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy. So God's going to one day pour out upon Israel a spirit that is gracious and produces pleas for mercy so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn son. Isaiah 6, 8. Who has heard such a thing? Who has seen such things? Shall a land be born in a day? Shall a nation be brought forth in one moment? For as soon as Zion was in labor, she brought forth her children. Hmm. Matthew twenty-three thirty-nine. Jesus has just finished the most vicious attack on the hypocrisy of the Jewish leaders in his day. That you could imagine calling them whitewashed tombs and hypocrites and brood of vipers. It's really powerful indictment as if he is now handing them over to the hardening that Paul says has come upon them. But when you get to the end of that chapter and read, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. How often would I have gathered like a hen gathers her chicks and you would not. Your house is laid desolate. I think that is a, a statement of judgment that consigns Israel for a season to hardness. Your house is laid desolate. 
And then come these amazing words. You will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. When is that going to happen? Didn't happen in the remaining 41 days of his life on earth. When is that going to happen? I do believe there's coming a day when somehow, in connection with the final trumpet, 14 million Jewish people, more or less, are going to repent and believe in Jesus and be grafted back in to the olive tree. So, what then should we do if that's true? And I suppose it doesn't alter our behavior very much from those other two views. Might alter the way we pray a little bit. But we should all do this. We should build a bridge between the Jewish community and the Christian community out of the lumber of Romans 11. One bridge, not two. And we should get on that bridge on our knees lest we look threatening. For anti-Semitism is a real horrible reality in church history for which all Christians should repent and renounce it. Get on our knees with the Apostle Paul in Romans 10.1 and say, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they might be saved. And I will lay down my life. I won't take any life. I will lay down my life to show the beauty of Christ to my Jewish neighbors and friends. And secondly, we should open our mouths on this bridge and celebrate our enjoyment of their inheritance. So as if possible, by any means, to make them jealous. And I've explained what I think that means. It means like over lunch tomorrow, when you're talking about the movie, you say something like, I just love Isaiah 53. I just love that first picture in, in that movie where it says, by his stripes we are healed or by his wounds we are healed and he bore our transgressions. I trust Jesus in order to inherit that promise made to Israel in Isaiah 53. Do you enjoy Isaiah 53? It's your book. Something like that. In other words, not a not an indicting, critical, but rather a celebrative, I love your Messiah. I love everything he's given me out of the treasure house of your inheritance. I would so be delighted if we could worship together in him. That's not ugly. And it is most certainly not anti-Semitic. The refusal to talk like that is anti-Semitic. And at the judgment day, those who do not believe will fault us if we build two bridges. Let's pray.
So, Father in heaven, I pray now that there would be a deep humility upon the church of Jesus Christ for sins committed against Jewish people. And because the root supports us, we don't support the root. And because our salvation is a means to their salvation. And because if we brag, we too will be broken off. Lord, make us servants of the Jewish community for the sake of salvation from the wrath to come. Lord, turn these remarkable days in our cities for the glory of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Give us boldness and humility to that end, I pray in His name. Amen.